From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite and this is the UAE Tech Podcast Expo Edition, a celebration of how technology is reshaping culture, economics and governance for the 21st century, brought to you by Albawaba Business. If you're interested in sponsoring the UAE Tech Podcast, tune in at the end of this episode for more information. Greg reaches out to me and I stayed in touch with Greg and he goes, Hey, there's a, there's a hardware startup company and they have this VR headset. They want you just check it out. And he said, I said, okay, have the guy call me, call me. Brennan calls me. He goes, I hear your, your guitar hero, blah, blah, blah. He comes, I say, okay, come meet me. I have a dev studio. This is it behind me. I go, come meet me and we'll, we'll take a look at it. So he, he comes, shows up with this, foam headset in his hands and a la- Apple laptop that was running bootcamp with PC stuff on it and a demo program for it. Someone had written, ported a demo program into the Oculus Rift with warping and so oh. forth, all the aspects you needed. Shows up at the door. I put it on and go, oh man, this is really cool visually. And um, he goes, you want to join us? There's a kid named Paul Molucky who's started this thing with John Carmack uh, who's a famous video game developer working together and they're working on it, doing an, doing a demo app for it. So they showed this to me. The Kickstarter thing was not something that I don't do marketing stuff like that. I know a little tiny bit about it. It's not my, I'm an engineer, right? So, you know, we're going to put it on Kickstarter and I go, what's Kickstarter? <laughs> they go, well, it's crowdfunding. You put your stuff there and people can buy the stuff and, you know, you can, they can bid on it and buy it. And I go, that's really a dumb idea in my head. I'm thinking because I work come from, you know, corporate sort of logistics, warehousing, marketing. Right. Yeah. It's all 100%. set up. Yeah. It doesn't have any of that. Mm. So I figured they'd try it. And to be honest with you, it was done just for PR. Right. We, we didn't have any long-term plan to sell stuff on uh, with an e-store. I mean, maybe, but it was just a, a PR thing. It was brilliant. And it was professionally filmed with a film crew here at this place. From Activision to Atari, Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, Jack McCauley's work spans the history of gaming. In the 1980s, he received a U.S. Defense Department scholarship to study microelectrical mechanical systems at Berkeley, a university where he lectures today. McCauley's work would help to develop USB drivers, kernel mode drivers, the first scrolling feature for a computer mouse, and the Guitar Hero controller, which made gaming both more tactile and accessible. Then there is his work on the Oculus Rift dev kits 1 and 2 before the VR headset company was sold to Facebook for US 2.3 billion in cash and stock in March of 2014. In this episode we talk about hardware education and the early Oculus Kickstarter campaign which probably remains the most famous crowdfunding campaign in internet history to this day and almost certainly the most economically successful long-term. Coincidentally, the internet campaign that helped make Oculus part of cyberspace culture was filmed at Jack's house, the same location where we recorded this podcast episode. There's also an anecdote about an interview with Steve Jobs that didn't go all that well. Since COVID-19, dozens of indicators demonstrate surging revenue for companies such as Epic Games, Apple, and new contenders such as Roblox in gaming and early-stage metaverse environments. 
Statista predicts that the VR market will grow from US $27 billion in 2018 to US $209.2 billion by 2022, that's next year. But beyond the numbers, Jack's story represents a sort of untold history of Silicon Valley, a history in which gaming plays a much more central role than many accounts often portray. To begin with, I wanted to ask you about Berkeley in the 1980s. I know the US DOD gave you a full scholarship. I know it's a, a college that had a big impact on Silicon Valley. And I know it's somewhere you enjoy teaching. So what was that like uh, attending Berkeley in the 1980s? Well, uh, thanks. And uh, it's great to be here uh, and speaking and apologize for not making it to the conference. So I had problems with my passport. So I was all primed and ready to go. California in the 1980s, this, uh, I, I remember picking up this magazine called Vite Magazine in high school. And Vite Magazine was sort of like a, a raggedy kind of newspaper thing with tech stuff in it. And uh, it was for basically a programmer hobbyist. And I didn't understand much about programming. This is uh, probably about 16 or 17. But I remember seeing an ad in the back for Apple Computer. And I thought it was odd because they had the Apple logo and it had a bite out of it. And I said, who would want to work? Why don't they have a full Apple? Why do they take a bite out of it? So this, this was the, the sort of beginnings of Silicon Valley in, in as we know it today in California. The, the, um, the origin of uh, a lot of what happened in the Silicon Valley has to do a lot with video games. And um, I, I attribute that statement to the fact that companies like Atari with their 2600 console, which was a ground-breaking piece of hardware, uh, preceded uh, Apple Computer, was sort of the first sort of computerized uh, appliance you could buy for your house. And then it was followed by the TRS-80. But I, I just remember the whole vibe back then. Uh, it was a little free and wild. Um, of Apple's manufacturing plant was actually located in Santa Clara, California, uh, and surrounding areas. There's suppliers uh, everywhere. And the first Apple II a clone computer out of probably thing probably came out of Taiwan, started showing up in about 1979, 1980. So the clone people were actually knocking off the Apple uh, computers right around the same time as Apple was launching their two years. It was kind of a spectacular thing that you were, they were able to reproduce <laughs> it so quickly. Uh, it was a great place to, to work back then, exciting. Uh, it was built on, on fruit orchards, the entire Silicon Valley down there, they grew plums. And the entire, they were still there. Those orchards were still there. Some cantankerous old, you know, farmers still trying to keep a hold of their land. And, and that was the vibe back then. Um, and Berkeley, uh, of course, has got a, uh, it's a spectacular institution. I actually worked there as a disclaimer, but um, I'm also an alumni. I was going to school back there in the 80s. And this is the generation that is not the hippie generation. I'm not the hippie generation. We're like post-hippie uh, with sort of, some of that culture in it, but more or less kind of, you know, we're going to change the world with technology kind of thing and, and go, vibe going on and a lot of employment. And I worked in entertainment. I, I worked there my whole life. Um, with a few exceptions, I worked in alternative energy things, which I'm very interested in, incidentally, but I worked in entertainment. It's a very exciting field to be in back then. And Activision, who, who was my later employer, was actually started out as a hardware company. Of course, they're in Santa Monica, but 
Los Angeles area. Uh, and I remember they were a hardware company with cartridges uh, for various consoles. So that was the thing that was going on back then. I knew nothing about programming when I was 17. I, I learned it um, by, t by buying a TRS-80 computer and getting a hold of one rather with a tape drive on it and learning programming basic when I was 18. So it was kind of like the, uh, you know, sort of DIY uh, folks uh, playing a big role in Silicon Valley. A lot of engineers back then didn't have engineering degrees, but worked for these tech companies. They were not necessarily even college educated. They were like hobbyists and, and sort of people that were very interested in that, in, in what was happening in the computer world back then. And, you know, now you have AI and you have a lot of other, um, you know, ARM processors and so forth. You have a lot of options as far as where you want to work and what you want to do. But I would attribute the birth of that to the condensing of the microcontroller and making it small enough because of consumer demand in um, the Atari 2600 and also other consoles that were coming out prior to Apple computer. Um, Apple was like the first commercial machine with a canned spreadsheet package that you could buy on a card. Uh, that was actually made by Microsoft with, with Apple, interestingly enough. But this is sort of the beginning of it. I remember when Microsoft started up uh, back then, and um, I have a significant amount of experience programming DOS because of, because of Bill Gates' efforts there. So that was the vibe. Um, we weren't trying to necessarily change the world in a social context, but technology, there was a whole bunch of myself and friends and colleagues and so forth who were very interested in what was happening and very interested in computers in particular. That's so interesting. Thanks for, thanks for painting that picture. A um, couple of questions based on that. How big was it? Did, did everybody know each other back then? Um, what kind of things were you talking about, you know, at work and outside of work? What, what were, the, were the discussions about technology? What kind of problems, um, you know, electromechanical or engineering or design problems were you talking about back in the 1980s? And, and looking back, was that kind of the golden era? Have you got a bit of a nostalgia for that time? I, I, uh, I'll say this, that the space program, the United States space mm. program launched the uh, Intel processor family with um, essentially, which was half, half of an 8088 that's running inside of a space capsule in the early 70s. So the integrated circuits uh, industry started prior to the consumer um, electronics part of computing. Uh, but without the space program, we wouldn't have the 8088 processor. We probably wouldn't have DOS. So um, the, the sort of historical part of this thing and the reason it kind of got launched is there's a lot of defense contractors back down there and Intel was doing a lot of defense work. Um, the, the 8032 processor, which is used in all kinds of stuff still to these days, was launched in 1979. The core architecture of the computer is still still being used to these days. It's the least expensive option out there. When I was at Activision, we used that processor uh, because it was cheap. It was 15 cents for, per, per unit. So it's all cost-driven things. But I, I would say that um, I, I didn't expect it to explode like it did. Uh, primarily driven, a lot of it driven by entertainment and, and keeping people entertained. Um, was what drove a lot of it. A lot of people who bought computers bought them to play games on. Um, so Tetris and so forth, uh, Doom, uh, th those kinds of games that were early on DOS. 
web-based games. So that that's kind of what what was happening back then. I didn't anticipate blockchain or the explosion of of AI, um, uh, both good and bad on AI side of things. But but what it's being used for. But um, I didn't expect that. Um, that's sort of a dystopian thing, by the way, where you have a computer being able to characterize your habits and beam ads at you is disquieting to me, to be say the least. It makes me wonder what, uh, you know, I took a part of a popular thermostat made by a popular search engine company and found a component in there which they don't need. And it was interesting because I took it out. I removed it. Wow. Uh, so this is, this, this is what's happened is mm. it's... Uh, evolved into, uh, um, you know, it, what's great Surveillance about it, capitalism. It, what's great about it is that I don't have to search very hard and stuff just shows up that I need, but I kind of wonder about what we're giving away a little bit in terms of our liberty and, and privacy. So yeah. I, this is the sort of the thing that I didn't expect. I didn't expect blockchain. Right. When I heard about blockchain, this is like six or seven years ago when uh, this kid that I was working with told me about it. I said, you know, I invest in, you know, like Fortune 500 stocks and things like that. I, and I've got stock options with companies. I don't understand it. I just, it sounds risky to me. And it was, at the time I was going for like three bucks a coin or something. And, and this kid bought a heck of a lot of them believing in what was being done. He probably understood it better than I did, but uh, I'm sure he's doing, he's, I know he's doing very well right now with what he's done. And co-founder of the company with him too. So I didn't. <laughs> I kind of like poo-pooed it. And I just look at what people like Warren Buffett say about it. You know, he says it's a dumpster fire, and be careful. And kind of that's Warren Buffett has a great track record. That's who I listen to things. So yeah, I didn't well, anticipate. I didn't anticipate the blockchain, and I didn't anticipate the prolifer proliferation of AI. And you know what's driven AI's proliferation? is the tensor processor. The computer that runs a, the AI engine is, is a graphics processing unit. It has a lot of similarities. And a lot of the work that was done on GPUs was for, for entertainment, for video games. So without video games and being as popular as they have been and, and the, the requirement for high render rates and textures and so forth on the screen, there wouldn't be AI. Uh, a, a portion of uh, NVIDIA's business is dedicated to AI, the, the computer that runs the graphic stuff is the same engine that can run, very easily run an AI neural network, for instance. So that um, was sort of an outgrowth of it. If, if there weren't the consumer demand for high-end graphics in CAD, but particularly in entertainment, there wouldn't be these other branches that have come out of that. Um, and so I, I keep going back to what, you know, what where our industry I worked in, which incidentally to your point is very small, it still is. The people I work with, I still stay in touch with them. Uh, we all know, kind of know each other um, yeah. to, to varying degrees. Uh, for instance, if you're in the UK, I know people in the UK too that do this stuff too. So UK is a great place to do, uh, you know, for video game stuff like Grand Theft Auto and so forth. But we, we love video that, games in the UK. So we I absolutely know. adore yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And so without the, without the sort of um, push on the entertainment side, there wouldn't be a market for, uh, for rich graphics. And so the, the demand for richer and richer and more um, immersive graphics has driven the GPU, the graphics processing unit, which goes into PC to run games, which has actually driven the AI stuff. So it sort of evolved out of that. 
That's why in the beginning when I talked, I said a lot of it's driven by entertainment. It is. People like to be entertained. Why do you go on Facebook and spend, I look at my screen times like two hours. I wake up at night and I'm on my phone looking at Facebook. It's like, why is that? It's entertaining. That's why you're doing it. You want to peer into people's lives and you like to make snarky comments or whatever, or funny comments and stuff, people's feeds and so forth. So it's driven by entertainment. Um, and so there is a dark side to that. And as I mentioned, uh, the, in my view, um, the loss of privacy uh, and freedom, um, what um, these people are doing with our data and, and what, the, you know, what's being used for. Um, these are ish, big issues right now, I think. So, um, so to answer your question, um, the, the industry is very small uh, in entertainment and it was very small back then. I got interviewed by Steve Jobs when I was 19 or 20, I was probably 20, I was a college student, went, saw an ad in Byte Magazine. There was no internet, right? So opened up Byte Magazine, programmers, right? So, okay, I sent in my app, I get called in for an interview, I went through a couple of people and then it finally came to him and it lasted about 10 seconds. He said, he looked at me and he said, I can't use you. And he cut, that was the end. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, Steve Jobs looked at you, took one look at you within 10 seconds, well, said, I know, can't he, use you. And you helped invent yeah. the US. He was busy. Worked on the yeah. Oculus Rift. What? Yeah, he, he was busy or something. I, I just Were you okay, with, were you okay with that? Was he kind of like a bit of a, an early tech bro, a bit of a dick? Or was he kind of charming and he could get I think away he with was it? A, I, think he, I think the way he treated people was not the way that I would do things. Right. I think it, that although they have great people at Apple, yeah, sure, uh, sure. best engineers and stuff, so forth. I just yeah. think back then that's just not that's just not right. Not if you're cool. looking for yeah. Talent, yeah, that's so. yeah, God. And, um, and he was kind of scruffy looking and he didn't look like uh to me like he was took very good care of himself. That was just my call, you know, back then. I may be wrong. Uh, but it didn't last long. Uh, I wouldn't have lasted long, I probably would have gotten fired. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, and uh, it, that's how small it was. And, and Wozniak graduated. Steve Wozniak's co-founder of Apple Computer. That's um, uh, Steve Jobs' um, sort of co-founder. Started the company with Woz. Woz is the hardware guy. Uh, Woz is also a Berkeley guy. Gradu he graduated right. the same class as I did at Berkeley, same year. Um, Woz is completely different person. Is a very nice guy i mean i'm not saying steve jobs isn't nice but he's a very nice man he's just a great guy to be around very humble and warm so uh you know what and i see him at events and so forth and talk to him so the answer question yeah it was very small um back then and 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 what it is now is very different um the the problem the united states faces as all the all company countries are trying to develop their tech talent is labor shortage there's not enough programmers and engineers that are produced by American colleges and universities and high schools to meet demand. We can't meet demand. And it's been like that for 30 years. And so we have to bring people in from all over the world, India, Pakistan, the far Middle East, wherever, Israel, Saudi Arabia, all these places, Western Europe, France, UK, uh, to work, that work here as engineers because there's just not enough demand. If we could fix our, our education system to make STEM in particular intriguing to people and, and fun, which it was for me growing up, um, we would be able to meet demand. So it's very different now than it was back then. It was mostly 
guys from California, local guys in the Bay Area, yeah. some people from outside Sacramento or someplace like that, or LA or Los Angeles. Sacramento is a town near near um, Silicon Valley, but it was all local folks, educated locally in local colleges and universities. You keyed in on something about Berkeley and Stanford. You didn't mention Stanford, but Berkeley was a big feeder for tech, and we had the best professors and you know university lecturers and educators working there. And we still do. Um, <laughs> I may so myself, <laughs> but it was a big feeder. And and those schools, if you want to ask how it got started there, it was the intellectual property that was in the valley at the time with those universities. They just had the folks on hand working there. One of the guys, incidentally, um, who's a Berkeley guy, is also a friend of mine. Is now the CEO of Ferrari. That's the caliber of people uh, they that Berkeley produces. Um, and really, I'm. I, I don't think with that educate that uh, great education I got there. That's why I'm giving back. I wouldn't be where I am. I got great training in the public school system in California. It was number one in the country in the '70s. It's not anymore, yeah, unfortunately. But mm. that's that's sort of the genesis of it. We had a good education system, great weather, uh, sort of kickback, um, wild west sort of attitude. I love right. that. Yeah, um, and not too much regulation. No, not too many bosses and. And that's how it got started. It's just the vibe and the culture here back in the day. It has changed now. It's a corporate kind of thing. And, and that's fine. You need, you need a corporation. Um, you have Facebook, um, eBay's headquartered here, Facebook, all the major tech firms are right here. And so it's just a, it's very different. Um, I, one doesn't think of Facebook as being an entertainment company, but I do. They bought my business, and which was engineered for entertainment essentially is for keeping people happy and entertained so they kind of are although their revenue is from ads and they're brilliantly it's brilliantly done every quarter they've knocked it out of the park zuckerberg you know is mark zuckerberg is mark zuckerberg but he has killed it every quarter um now the downside of that is you know like the things i mentioned i'm not i'm very uncomfortable with some of those things and i think a lot of folks are are getting that way there might be coming regulation which will affect these these businesses google's headquartered here um, i'm very close to this like 30 minutes away from google's headquarters so very close so and that's the sort of what's happened and 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 now i don't i mean i'm kind of retired i i don't know all the people i should know um but i i still have some contact with folks here's a pro tip um, and, and I'll, with a little story to back it up, I worked at Activision with, um, on Guitar Hero as a head engineer on that game. Uh, the guy that hired me, I rent space to now because he has a startup. <laughs> I, I gave, I gave him space to use. It got, I got a commercial building here. I got open space. Hey man, just come on. I love that. That's what I like. Kind of like the, the, you know, early days of Silicon Valley thing. Just give me some options, you know, or something like that. Trade you for rent. And that's the guy that hired me. And the guy that I worked with, who's the co-founder of Guitar Hero, got me the gig at Berkeley. So yeah. that's how it works. Yeah, you got to know people, man, and stay in touch with people and don't be a, a jerk, you know, or a dick. <laughs> Unless you're Steve Jobs and you'll be okay. Um, well, I, that's, a different, that's a different guy, a different kind of person, right. a, a mega, mega talent um, guy. And, you know, Steve Jobs right. is as a visionary. I mean, we're each holding in our hands his ideas. It's, yeah, right, exactly. For, I mean, there was um, Palm Computer before this, but I mean, this is like, 
this is the influence somebody like that has, or perhaps Elon Musk and Tesla's headquarters, well, was until about last week was headquartered. Probably it's 25 minutes from here as Tesla's big operation, their manufacturing plant. Yeah. So, now they've got yeah. one in Texas or something, but they, they've kept the one in California, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Well, they have their plant here, their manufacturing plant. They're moving their headquarters to Texas for tax reasons, probably. Right. Mm. They have a, a factory in Sparks, Nevada. It's about four hours from here driving. Uh, that is to make batteries. And so that's, that's kind of like Tesla's here. Everyone around here drives a Tesla. I have I, one. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. I, I heard about that. But um, so, no, thank, but thanks for that. I mean, there's an awful lot there. We, we had um, an episode with um, the founder or one of the chief, uh, if not the chief innovator on MetaMask, which is kind of a, um, a very widely used crypto wallet earlier this week. And um, he said something very similar to you that you mentioned earlier. He said, if you look at the core components of how a computer is put together, elements of the hardware haven't actually, some elements of the hardware haven't actually changed that much or the core principles behind how it works haven't changed that much. I thought that was interesting. And then on another um, episode with a very, very interesting guy uh, running a, a large Russian company uh, called Sensorium, which is a VR entertainment music platform with, with massive global artists backing it. Um, and he was kind of talking about AI and he actually got his phone out and showed us this GP3 AI kind of an, a, a, and a 3D avatar inter interacting in English and replying to, to, to queries in English. I don't know how I feel about it, but it was, you know, it was definitely memorable seeing that. Um, and most of the replies were believable. There were a couple of, couple of weird ones, but, um, you know, a lot of it, it, it was moving, it's moving forward very fast from the, you know, kind of chatbots of five years ago. Um, but yeah, no, in your summary, there was a lot of, a lot of yesterday and, and a lot of sense of how far we've, we've come and how difficult to predict some of these trends were. And I think, you know, tech governance at some point um, might have to be kind of a wider conversation, not just led, you know, by policymakers or the media, but it, it, I think increasingly it'll be something everyone talks about as these platforms become you know, more important. Um, I think we, we'll, we'll get into some of those points on education, blockchain, um, you know, all of that stuff uh, in a bit, but I did want to ask you about kind of just early gaming, kind of what games are you guys playing back then? You know, you've worked at uh, or worked with Activision, Atari, Nintendo, Microsoft. Um, so do you just have any fun or interesting stories on, on working with any of those guys, you know, between the 1980s to the late 1990s, any fun games or, or you know, innovations that, that you kind of remember and think were notable? Well, I would have to say uh, the, the break that I got, the biggest break I got, um, uh, well, there's two breaks. And um, one is being asked to author the USB specification the hid portion of that was uh, my workmanship with a guy named Ken Ray at Microsoft. Uh, this brought in a whole lot of people who are working on peripherals um, into my realm, including people working at gaming companies. And this is in the 90s or mid 94, 95 timeframe. Uh, these folks um, were um, 
primarily in working in mice and keyboards and entertainment, stuff like that, speakers. And from that, I got introduced to more people. And um, back in these days, this is the, when Doom and Quake were being launched, this is the first sort of PC-based gaming stuff that was coming out at the time. Um, uh, This was sort of when it was blooming and it was migrating away from consoles, the Sinclair and, and Atari consoles into the PC because the PC became more powerful now, starting to get more and more power. It was the uh, X286 with the, G- with the graphics coprocessor, excuse me, the math coprocessor, which accelerated things. And then it just sort of evolved from that. And then the bulk of people, although they're playing console, still playing console games or playing PCs, that changed when the PlayStation 1 came out, the GameCube. Yeah launched people migrated back onto the consoles because it was 199 dollars for the complete thing you bought it Mm -hmm. in a box for 199 you bought the games wherever you bought them in retailers what's the retailer in the uk for wixels or something you buy the game there on a a rack or you can rent it you can just rent the game yeah i mean i back when so i you know, I grew up in the Midlands. I grew up actually close to a city called Leicester, which was one of the gaming hubs in my country. Um, yeah. Just a very, it was one of those cities in the UK that culturally gaming was just everywhere. Everyone had a PlayStation. Um, and it was funny because when I went, moved down south for university, it, it was a bit different. Um, and it was seen as, you know, still still a little bit, it, there was just kind of a weird kind of north-south divide on, on the gaming front to, to a small extent. But uh, I remember we'd, we'd buy the games and, you know, the games, the, hot, the, the CDs for the PlayStation were actually quite, quite expensive um, at that time. And so what happened is, um, you know, you, you, where I grew up, you had a massive kind of black market trade in, in all, all sorts of like chipped devices and, and copied CDs and stuff like this. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, but it was, yeah, gaming was absolutely massive. And, and I was, you know, I, I, I was going to say, you know, I remember playing Time Crisis and the, the, getting the gun. So you could almost have an arcade in your, home, in your home, you know, which was what everyone wanted, right? And playing with the Time Crisis gun, which was seen as state of the art back then. Same. I, so Guitar Hero was a little bit later. And you worked on both, right? So we were also, you know, that is another fun question. How did Guitar Hero come about? And, um, you know, it is a bit weird. You know, the gun yeah. I get, but the guitar. So, you know, how, how do you look back on that project? Uh, was it fun? Um, and do you think Guitar Hero could be the beginning of, of other stranger things in future, perhaps in, in VR and, you know, haptics? But, but yeah, tell us a little bit about how Guitar Hero came about. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up Leicester because I used to work with Fire International and Leicester building uh, gun, con- gun controllers, clone GunCon uh, 2 and GunCon 3 controllers with, with the, the proprietor there and selling the chipsets to various companies. Back in that, those huh. days, this is in the 90s, yeah. uh, there were a whole bunch of companies making video, video game peripherals and this guy's company was in Leicester. And this, this segues into the guitar hero story because the guy I was working with um, in England, the UK, um, I got poached from his company because I was doing the design on his peripherals, the, the, the programming and the design work on them, the engineering, to another guy who worked for Take-Two. And Take-Two was the Grand Theft Auto people, right? He had a company. He was, they were in Somerset. He had a company that 
and London, rather, and they may have had a company that also made peripherals, right? This is the guy that's upstairs now. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. He's an entrepreneur. Wow, yeah, interesting. He, he, yeah, he hired me to work uh, at, at Activision um, because I work with him. He, they, they were looking for a peripherals guy. Who do we know? Oh, that's Jack, of course. And I had reversed all the PlayStation uh, protocols for the controllers, the console and stuff, the internal architecture of it. I reverse engineered it. I was so very interested in it. And I also got paid a little bit to do that. Hmm. Um, and anyways, I ended up uh, getting recruited to be the head engineer. At, you know, I wasn't a founder of, of Guitar Hero. I was a, uh, and nor the designer. The designer, the history of that game, it goes back to a Japanese game called Guitar Freaks. Guitar Freaks was a plastic guitar with three buttons on the neck. You push the buttons like this to follow the notes on the screen. And, but it was all Japanese pop music. And it was Charles Wong and Kai Wong, the founders of Guitar Hero, their idea was to put American music to the same game. And that's, that's Guitar Hero right there. And I got called in by my friend upstairs here and upstairs in the building to take a look at it at CES with another guy from the UK called, uh, named Kelly Sumner, who's the former CEO of Take-Two. They brought me in there to take a look at it. And I just thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Who, why, why don't you just learn to play a real guitar? Why do that? I didn't get, you know, it's an air guitar game, right? I didn't get the whole air guitar thing. So uh, I saw it there. I go, okay, I can help you with it. Uh, but I got limited time, blah, blah, blah. And they're going, no, no, you got to come on full time. You're going to work your full time designing stuff for us. We have these, this is our schedule. We got these launch dates. Um, and the interesting thing is that uh, that's a $2 billion franchise. Mm. Um, and I heard uh, we sold 64 million units, plastic pieces of guitar. Uh, I heard that there were 23 container ships on the water at once with all filled with guitar hero stuff. We had three wow. factories. One factory had a stadium sized construction, fabrication, and injection molding facility for making guitars. So it was a huge, huge deal. Very scary. For me, I was scared because I thought I would screw it up, like make a little mistake and have to return everything. You know, it's a ghost of your mind when you're working on it. So uh, I had no idea it was going to do that, um, and um, it, but it did. We had trouble pitching and selling the business because the revenue you need to bring in, the capital that's required to produce that many plastic pieces mm -hmm. is enormous. Uh, more than we had in the entire company. The net worth of the entire individuals owning the entire company was less than what we needed just to get the stuff going. So yeah. uh, we had to find outside help. We pitched it to Activision. Uh, we pitched it to EA, other places. Kelly, this guy, Kelly Sumner, the CEO, he says it's his job. He was the CEO of Red Octane, which produced the game. Kai and Charles were not the CEOs. They're the co-founders. They hired Kelly to get the company off the ground, which he did very successfully. So uh, we couldn't find a buyer. We finally sold it to Activision for 120 million. Can you imagine that? I had this kind of theory that looking back, although Guitar Hero may have seemed a bit strange to me at the time as an AA gamer, it it may have expanded interest in gaming by, you know, you don't need to press as many complicated buttons. It's tactile. So you move your body in the air guitar form and you immediately see the screen making noises and responding to you so it's a form of gaming that that everyone can kind of understand in a very physical way and that could have that could have actually looking back started some trends that we'd later see in the wii and and going forward perhaps in in other forms of ways we interact with games um i was just 
trying to see what you think about that, whether Guitar Hero was was about hardware, but was also in a way about a different way of playing and thinking about games. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in the genre of rhythm games, they call it. And uh, you have to think back to 1999 timeframes uh, when you're thinking of, of Guitar Hero because there was a, a, a game called Dance Dance Revolution. It was a dancing game that you played with your feet to music. And another one I didn't really get um, very well, but it was very popular. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, Red Octane started out, one of the things they were doing in their business was selling uh, Dance Dance Revolution uh, dance pad, clone dance pad that I worked on. I didn't, I didn't build that for him. I fixed some problems with it. So it's a genre called rhythm games. They're short play things. It, when you're doing a video game, you can't move your body around too much because it makes you tired. And, and if you're moving your body around and you're getting tired, you're not going to want to play the game as we found out with exercise games yeah. later on at Electronic Arts is people don't want to play them that long. And it, it's in that genre, but Guitar Hero, you're not really moving around so much as you are pressing buttons. It's short arcade-ish play and it's fun. And you nailed it because it's easy to learn. Uh, the barrier to entry to playing an FPS, like Call of Duty, um, and less so Grand Theft Auto, is the up the come up time, especially for older people. It's a little bit harder for them to learn how to use a controller. Uh, younger people already have that down pretty much. Um, so that's it, it has a low barrier to entry. Uh, the big thing it had going for it, and this is what we they knew I didn't know so much, but it was the music, and we they chose music uh, back then. It's just guitar-based music that had a broad audience. As a matter of fact, some of the music that was featured in Guitar Hero One uh, started getting radio play again because of Guitar Hero. Because people <laughs> would, hey, you know, play uh, you know play Megadeth. Megadeth um, was on Guitar Hero One. They provided the original tracks because Dave Mustaine at Megadeth got it. He understood Guitar Hero. He says, this is, you know, I didn't talk to him personally, but I heard he said, this is going to be the best, the biggest thing to hit us. And he was right. Um, so uh, Symphony of Destruction, he, we got the original masters for that game on Guitar Hero One. All the others were covers because the art, other artists said, no one wants to do that. They, you know, who wants to? That's kind of what I said. But he saw it. Um, so it was the music uh, that that pulled people in. And the older folks and younger folks, the music appealed to them. I'm not saying that you it would appeal, the music today would appeal to as broad of an audience, but it did. So it's like you got the hook of the music and it's easy to play. You can learn it very quickly. And it's a crowd social thing where you play against other players. And all the, that those three key things made it made it made it work. And it was cheap. We paid eight dollars for the plastic guitar from China to give you an idea of what it cost. Bill of materials were like very low. We sold it for ninety dollars. Some places you could find it for sixty, so it was profitable. And um, when I see people, uh, they they mention Oculus, but they always want to talk about Guitar Hero. And everyone has a story about Guitar Hero that they'll tell me. You know, oh, I learned that in college. Like I, my grades went down <laughs> playing Guitar Hero. Or, you know, I played that in high school. We played it all the time in my room. I love that game. And so at Oculus, I get people, oh, yeah, that's cool. All right, see you later. 
too many questions so, about it. So I quickly ask you about Oculus, but um, but yeah, just on that, you know, it's really hard to predict what happens in some of these markets. I remember there was a kid called Alex at high school in the early nineties, and he had this crazy idea that Apple computers were better than PCs, and he was always getting mocked for this. Hmm. Um, of course, Alex, <laughs> Alex was onto something. <laughs> Everyone else in the school was wrong. Um, and then, you know, on some of these, these gaming trends um, as well, kind of, you know, um, people didn't always see them coming. That said, um, you know, one thing I did want to ask you about was um, in July 2012, you were rec recruited by Oculus VR and you joined Palmer Lucky, uh, Brendan Ereeb, Nate Mitchell and Michael Antonoff. Um, so but before that move to the Rift, how or, or during i'm not sure how did the kickstarter campaign go what was that like did you hear about it mm. because that was part of internet history really it just seemed to come yeah. out of nowhere and i know you know we've spoken about the hardware and um, we can we can speak about oculus but i'm sure you've done that on other interviews i did want to ask you a little bit about that kickstarter campaign because even now i think people look back on it yeah so i uh be prior to engaging with Palmer and Brendan Uribe, um, it's a, just let me back up and tell you how it sort of played out, how they showed up here. And so I have great relationships. I worked at Activision in their intellectual property department. And there's a lawyer there who's a chief counsel at Activision, head guy. He calls me and says, you know, I kind of stayed in touch with him. Like, this is the thing. You want to stay in touch with people, just call him. They, you can ask them out to lunch. They may not want to go out to lunch with you, but just do it. And then just keep calling them like once every six months or reach out to them. Say, hey, man, how are you doing? So Greg reaches out to me and I stayed in touch with Greg. And he goes, hey, there's a, there's a hardware startup company and they have this VR headset. They want, you just check it out. And he said, I said, okay, have the guy call me. Call me. Brennan calls me. He goes, I hear your, your guitar hero, blah, blah, blah. He comes, I say, okay, come meet me. I have a dev studio. You're, this is it behind me. I go, come meet me and we'll we'll take a look at it. So he he comes, shows up with this foam headset in his hands and a la Apple laptop that was running bootcamp with PC stuff on it and a demo program for it. Someone had written, ported a demo program into the Oculus Rift with warping and so oh. forth, all the aspects you needed shows up at the door, I put it on and go, oh man, this is really cool visually. And um, he goes, you wanna join us? There's a kid named Paul Molucky who's started this thing with John Carmack, uh, who's a famous video game developer working together and they're working on it, doing, an, doing a demo app for it. So they showed this to me. The Kickstarter thing was not something that, I don't do marketing and stuff like that. I know a little tiny bit about it. It's not my, I'm an engineer, right? So. You know, we're going to put it on Kickstarter. And I go, what's Kickstarter? <laughs> they go, well, it's crowdfunding. You put your stuff there and people can buy the stuff and, you know, you can, they can bid on it and buy it. And I go, that's really a dumb idea. In my head, I'm thinking, because I work, come from, you know, corporate sort of logistics, warehousing, marketing. Right. Yeah. It's all 100%. set up. Yeah. It doesn't have any of that. Mm. So I figured they'd try it. And to be honest with you, it was done just for PR. Right. We, we didn't have any long-term plan to sell stuff on uh, with an e-store. I mean, maybe, but it was just a, a PR thing. It was brilliant. And it was professionally filmed with a film crew here at this place. What? Uh, they didn't, they we didn't wait, they filmed film, it there. 
They filmed it here, yeah. What? And no way. They did. Yeah, oh, they did. Wow. Yeah. The the lab part was filmed in this room back here. Uh, the the part where we were sitting on the couch and discussing things and interviewing was upstairs. Yeah, because they didn't have a place. They're they're yeah. young. You know, this guy's like thirty one. I, I mean, that was a part of internet history. That thing just went yeah. global and um, yeah. had so many eyes on it. And as you say, also just as a business model, in terms of you know, um, I think a lot of startups after that would move into crowdfunding, partly to to get you know early stage interest, but also as a marketing tactic. But you know, the Kickstarter thing for for Oculus just catapulted it and. There was something, I think it kind of had that almost, there was a sense that it was such a, it was such an imaginative idea, but there was also kind of that grainy, you know, the fact it wasn't a, a massive corporate behemoth and, yeah. the, you know, you could see these guys trying to build this thing that seemed very ambitious. It, it hit a nerve. Yeah. And uh, that's, that is really actually Nate Mitchell and Brendan Arribe's construction. Nate, turned out to be the surprise uh, person to me in all of this. All the guys are great. I loved those guys. So Nate turned out to be a super talented uh, marketeer. He's also an engineer, a software engineer, just very good at it. He's a lot younger than him. He was 26. Mm. He put the program together with Brendan. Uh, it was ingenious. Um, Palmer, Palmer's a DIY guy. He's um, you know, he's just a hobbyist kind of guy and he's, you know, he's not a marketer, marketeer. The story, the story is constructed around Palmer's and Palmer's Oculus headset. It, the story was built around that, how this young upstart 19 year old kid, and that's the appeal of it. It's a great product too. It works great. Um, you know, I've got my misgivings on some aspects of it, but and we kind of got our butt kicked a little bit by an, a competitor, but uh, it's just a great story and it was very attractive to people. Um, um, that's, that's kind of the long and short of it is I thought, I think, uh, the whole Kickstarter campaign to your point, uh, was ingenious. Uh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have taken it to Activision and shown it to them and they would have kicked me out of the size. <laughs> <laughs> or take it, take electronic arts with similar reception that we got for Guitar Hero. That's yeah. what I would have done. And, uh, and, and to your point, earlier point of a hardware startup, we were strapped for cash. Uh, people put money into the venture. Myself, uh, Mike um, Antonoff, um, uh, Brendan, of course, was a large contributor, uh, put their own capital into it. And when you go to get funding, they want to see skin in the game, which yeah. we gave them. We gave them, you know, a lot. It was a lot of money. But we needed $100 million. The build of, of DK1, the Kickstarter build, was super expensive and we had to pay our contractor manufacturer up front because the whole thing was so sketchy, no market for it. I mean, you could just see the thing playing through the minds of the CMs yeah, in China. It's sure. like they're business people. It's like, you know, what if these guys run out of money and they don't pay us and we ship it and we don't get paid all kinds of thoughts are occurring yeah. to them. So I had to come up that. with capital. Yeah. I can yeah. see that now looking back. I mean, you know, who's even going to use it? What is the audience? Yeah. Is this, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough risk to take. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm sure they also saw the numbers, the, the number of eyes on, on some of these online campaigns. Um, yeah, yeah that caught, is really interesting. It caught Mark Zuckerberg's attention via Andreessen Horowitz, who funded Facebook, provided the capital to Facebook. 
our entry into Mark Zuckerberg came via personnel at, at Andreessen Horowitz who allowed Brendan to go in and demo the headset to Zuck who loved it and said, this is the metaverse that, you know, I don't know what he's thinking now. I can talk to that guy, but you know, yeah. this is the, re this is the new tech tech. Now I still have my own opinions on, on that. Um, on the metaverse. So, so, I mean, nah. you know, coming towards the end of this episode, but the, the Jitex, um, which has just closed, had a lot of sessions on this idea of, of the metaverse. And before that I was, personally doing some work on something we were calling almost a virtual economy based on some of these trends we were seeing in nfts and uh play to earn gaming um which which is a, is a fascinating discussion um on both sides right now but this idea of a metaverse you know um interoperable worlds in which people can um own assets and build economies and play games what do you think of that and and do you think vr will be a significant aspect of it why can't you do that on a 2D monitor? I mean, well, you can, uh, you can. Um, I, yeah. I think part of the idea is, you know, it, it will be available on your on phone, your, on your phone or, or, your, yeah. or your laptop. Um, yeah. But I mean, that, that, you know, again, we're talking about entertainment here. It, you know, it, it's the, mm -hmm. I think a lot, most people would probably connect in that way, but there was always this idea as well of the kind of, you know, not just the simulation, but the kind of VR, um, VR world in which you're immersed and, and present and, you know, you can kind of um, interact. And do, do you think that kind of, again, 1980s and earlier, the, the kind of, I think Snow Crash was written in 92, um, where we first used the, the phrase metaverse. But but what, what do you think about the whole debate then generally, Jack? Because, you know, Oculus yeah. is, is, is a part of this story somehow. Yeah, when you play a video game or you watch a movie, you're you're taking an escape mm, from yeah. your reality. You're essentially leaving reality and going into a different reality. I think that's an incredibly, incredibly attractive as a <laughs> as a, a way uh, of, as an entertainment mechanism. Uh, so the that you would be allowed to live. I mean, I kind of live in Facebook a little bit. I always check it, even though I can't stand it in a lot of ways. I do. I go there a lot. Um, so there's there's a compelling entertainment value. As I said in the beginning of my talk, Facebook is an entertainment company. It's what they do. They really do keep you entertained. That's the, you know, Twitter. I don't know what Twitter is. Twitter's a, <laughs> a, a basket of neg negativity. I just think it's a negative place and I stay away from it. Facebook, on the other hand, is kind of a different. Uh, you get to see friends. You can make friends and so forth. So I think there's a compelling thing. Now, will people wear a VR headset for that? I, I don't think that Facebook had said it'll be in VR, but it seems to me uh, you're, you want to wear a VR headset for eight hours and walk around in an imaginary town you've built or living. That's compelling. Or you own 10 Ferraris and you live in Cannes, you know, or Dubai. You know, you own 12 Ferraris and you're a sheik in Dubai. You can be one. Uh, I thought there would be a great dystopian novels to write what would happen if Oculus took off and everyone lived inside their headset. And you might live in a dungy high rise with one bedroom and a toilet and a little stove, but in your VR world, you're, you've got a waterfront villa in the south of France over the Mediterranean. You know, that's, that's very 
That's very compelling. The novel actually has a, it goes south because not everyone's allowed to be in VR, only certain people. <laughs> so, so there's like a rebel group that's trying to kill VR, trying to kill the servers. It'd be a great novel. Is but that, I, I think that- Is that in Snow Crash? Uh, I don't think so. I think this is my sort of conjuring oh, idea. Okay. I actually, I look for a ghost author on it because I, I like, but then I started thinking, well, you know, I'm kind of slamming the people I work with. It's like, that's not very cool. To, like make the imaginary world turn vicious. You know, it's not very nice. So I kind of like bag that idea, but it'd be a great dystopian novel. It'd be a dystopian thing too. Like you could totally escape and just be in this world. You'd have beautiful partners and whatever right you could know, be the king of the discotheque whatever king of the well, king of the rave i don't know yeah i mean i've just uh, we we were talking about this i've just pulled up a, a quote from from snow crash which i think is kind of funny summarizes what you just said uh, it won't pay the rent but that's okay when you live in a shithole there's always the metaverse in the metaverse hero protagonist is a warrior prince and that's like from one of the the first books on you know this idea of, of going into this parallel world and, and being, you know, it basically starts with the guy's kind of a, a ninja pizza delivery guy in the real world. But in the metaverse world, he's, he's one of the original founders who built some of the key applications that powers that universe. So uh, it, it was an interesting, an interesting idea. And of course, what some of these young kids are saying now is, look, we've been pushed out of the real economy. Um, the real economy isn't great for us if we want to buy property if we want to start a business you know it is really hard for us to do some of the things that that we dream of it's not like in some ways berkeley in the 1980s i'm not i don't think people are complaining they're just saying things have changed and if this new space is somewhere where we can build new things or have new opportunities we don't know if that's the case yet but if it is yeah we definitely want to jump into it and we'll use any, any input that we've got right Imagine a virtual economy therein where you could buy assets tax-free. Yeah. Virtual assets and, and they're yours. You don't have to pay property tax or income tax. You just live there and you can do what you want. You could be a cartel member or whatever you wanted to be. Yeah, I I I I get it. Um I, I think uh you know Snow Crash beat me uh, to to the punch, but um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a compelling reason that you would, you know, pe- who expected people to be millionaires on YouTube? I never expected that. There are people. There I know. There could be metaverse, metaverse trillionaires, you know, people that sell assets, real assets, and re- not real assets, but virtual assets for real coins, you know, and I then know. you live in them. At, well, you know. I've been seeing them driving past me at breakneck speeds for the past two weeks because we've had a big technology conference here. So the YouTubers, the crypto guys, um, hard yeah. to imagine two decades ago. But so just to kind of close close off today, um, a couple of questions on where things are going. So, you know, do you see the United States technology industry being as dominant and, and powerful over in within, you know, in the next 10 years time? Um I've moved out to Dubai and, and, you know, for the past, most of my life, I think the the US tech industry, no one even comes close to it. But since I've been out here, I've seen so much um, innovation coming out of China, um, coming out of India, and increasingly in in technologies, particularly like blockchain to, to, and to some extent, if not a lesser extent, AI, um, in, in Eastern Europe and, and Russia. And um, 
when you're out here, it's something very, very palpable. And, you know, every event, every conference, we're talking about Web 3.0. And a lot of the people working in those kind of uh, digital realms aren't from the States anymore, or, or it might just be COVID-19. But there seems to be um, that the center of gravity from if you if you're based in Dubai, it seems to be more multipolar. Um, and it is quite surprising. Do you think there are reasons for that? Do you think um, Silicon Valley is here to stay? And do you think there are ways that the economic model of, of some of what is being built out of um, the West could improve as well? Um, so that, you know, we, we're giving people more opportunities. Some of the practices aren't just based on dopamine or, you know, slightly exploitative um, privacy protocols. So just general thoughts on, on kind of whether we need a correction needs to happen and what the future might hold. Well, uh, to, to your point, um, look, in Europe, um, particularly, I go to these conferences in Amsterdam. I used to live in Holland, grew up in, in, in a town in Holland. So I go back and I get invited to speak there. I speak Dutch, so it kind of works well. So um, here, here's the issue that I, I see facing. You've got an educated workforce in Europe. Uh, they're smart. Um, and uh, they speak, uh, we speak the common language of English. Everyone speaks English there. Why isn't a Facebook coming out of Europe, out of France or some other Germany? Why isn't that happening? A lot of it has to do with the, the funding that takes place. There's just not the pool of venture capital money there is, that there is in Silicon Valley. I mean, we've got all the big VC firms there with uh, $500 billion of available capital to spend. I, I don't know if that number is real, but we've got a lot of money. When I was talking to these guys, they had a great idea. This is in the Netherlands. And so we're in Amsterdam talking to these guys. It was a really good idea, I thought. And I go, well, how much you got? They go, we got $5 million. Like, that's, that's not enough. You have to get more. And they go, where? And, hmm. and then they explained the system there and said, oh, that's a problem. Yeah. That you keep get your uh, feet off the ground because that, of the capital. That's, ma that's major in Europe. $5 million is major in Europe. Yeah. Well, $100 million is is is, is a, like a, a good investment here, pretty good. So mm -hmm. that's the problem. There's not enough capital you can't attract. And then the labor laws are different too, like the expectations about working and stuff. And here, uh, Oculus is working 14 hours a day and for months and months and months and months and months. On and on. I love doing that, though. By the way, I work. I still work. Like, I don't get paid anymore, but I still work hard like that. Um, if I'm enthusiastic, I will. I'll, I'll pull all the stops out. I mean, I, I'll sacrifice everything to work on it. So, it's just the very different. Is there a, a long-term threat to to the Silicon Valley? And my answer to that is, yeah, I, I think there is. I think that the government comes in here in the United States, comes in and starts regulating private companies. Um, um, and, and potentially violating uh, something that's guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. Um, I think that there's a potential problem with that. And I don't think, you may not like Facebook if you're a government person because there's negative stuff on there, but too bad. You know, it's just the way it is. Uh, deal with it. Um, you may not like certain aspects of Twitter, what's happening on Twitter. You may try to control that with legislation. That's a threat. Um, it turns out the, the two big the big surprise in all this, of course, is Facebook um, and TikTok. You know, familiar with TikTok and WeChat. These are companies that are not based on, it's just communication stuff and videos and things like that. 
a big surprise that they've done as well as they have. And, and I think that any kind of regulation that would be attempted to control that, and it might be coming, who knows, uh, would be disastrous for the, the U.S. For the economy here. I think it's better just to um, to go ahead and and um, do what we can in in the meantime and make sure that we have uh, what's going on now. You know, TikTok was a surprise to me. It's huge, and that's an entirely in Bite Dance. That's an entirely indigenous Chinese product. Um, WeChat has 1.4 billion users. It's less than Facebook. That's used globally. I'm, I have WeChat. Um, it's a payment system. It's this thing. It's that thing. These are developed in in China, um, independent of us. So yeah, there's there there's a threat. Um, there's no balance there though in China of our being being able to sell our products there. We have to buy. We can buy the, their products here and use their products. They can't use ours. That seems inequitable. But yeah. So yeah, I think that you know you're. The education thing, if we, if the United States does not get its education system back in order, there's a threat there because the quality, to first part of our conversation, the quality and the quantity of people we're producing to work in these intellectually intensive um, industries is, is not present. It's not being produced like they used to produce. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, so. Right. Yeah. So let, let's close that today, because I know that's something you care about a lot. And yeah. it might not be something that that investors and techies always talk about. But I, I do think it needs to be put on the map. I think here in the UAE, uh, universities and, and R&D that, that takes place at universities needs to be a conversation that comes up whenever technology is being discussed, particularly in some core areas like engineering and AI and blockchain. Um, but yeah, I mean, what what is happening in the U.S. education system? Is this about economics too? I mean, when I asked you the question about Silicon Valley, you said, you know, we've got more money to spend. But is what's happening on U.S. campuses culturally and economically in terms of just how much, you know, a whole, an entire generation are being asked to pay to go to a U.S. college? Has something structurally gone wrong? Um. I, I, if I could put my finger on exactly the key uh, part of this that's causing the issues, uh, I, I, I would, but I can't. I think it's a combination of things, um, cultural, of course. U.S., the people here in the United States always sort of value the Wild West, uh, I, I think, in my opinion, anyways. They sort of like that sort of, you know, Larry Ellison story was kind of bumming around Berkeley and, you know, kind of partying and stuff. And all of a sudden he's like a, a tech God. They love that story. Yeah. But reality is that doesn't happen very often. Um, well, it does. So Steve Jobs is another one that kind of a, you know, a ne'er-do-well that sort of did well. Uh, they love that story though here. And the idea that, you know, that works all the time is, is, is falsity. It's not the case that you start out with the basics, you know, the math and science and so forth. So I think it's a problem there. It's also a problem with unions in in the American system, um, not being able to pay teachers adequately or getting rid of teachers that aren't so great. These all, all these things sort of play into the uh, sort of problems here um, in the United States. It's cultural. That's uh, hard for me to put my finger on. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a very tough yeah. one. Um, and obviously, you know, I've walked around Berkeley and I've walked around Stanford. And uh, it's not to say they're not doing absolutely amazing things. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, when you were discussing Berkeley in the 1980s, uh, 
and maybe some I, I I've been to I spent a semester at Dartmouth which I absolutely loved as well and that was in in 2000 um 2003 so a Great long time. time ago beautiful beautiful absolutely loved it um but yeah I think you know if someone gave me a choice of, of kind of 1980s or kind of 2021 i might opt for for the 1980s on a u.s campus um but but anyway you know it, it, it's a tough one Here, here's here's the my call this is when i'm i'm complaining about the the private the primary education system the university education is still very good berkeley is the number one public university in the world it's it is by far has the most noble laureates best instructors oh it's public it, yeah it's a public school yeah, yeah. So, so it is a public school, and and I I can say that I never hear anything from students or the instructors about any of this stuff. Right. You, you hear about Berkeley. It's all nuts and bolts stuff. And I said I'm a trustee. I sit in the 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 financial parts. We're looking at money and stuff. It's all nuts and bolts stuff. Like how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to do this? How we, it's all nuts and bolts. I don't really see that here. I know that it, publicly they say that about Berkeley and some professors and so forth say dumb things perhaps, but I don't really see that here. I mean, I'm, I'm involved with it full time. So I just don't see it. And it's great. It's like, we have really, really, really great students and young people. Um, I'm not afraid to turn my world over to them. Yeah. They'll, they'll yeah. do something with it that I couldn't do. So I, I don't have such a negative opinion of the, the university system per se, some of it, uh, the student loan thing that kind of warped the education system, like this, the government giving away money to students. to Yeah, study. I, I wanted to just quickly ask you, do you think, I mean, it's heterodox, but do you think a smaller education system, and by smaller, I don't mean this vast academic industrial complex, complex but smaller cohorts, uh, apprenticeships and, and, and other things for people that want to enter industry, but a smaller, more lean, more focused education system that isn't quite so massive, so sprawling, almost providing a customer service or a customer experience to students. Do you think that could actually be something that would work in the United States? Or do you think the future could actually be more digital, more VR and immersive based, um, having larger cohorts that, that are engaging yeah. online? Um, it's, it's a tough one, but I, it does seem to be something that needs to shift. I think you can teach programming in a trade school. I've said yeah. that to people. You can learn it in two years and be confident at it. And you can go out and get a great job and you may not be the best at it and you'll probably get paid what you're worth. And then some people will be exceptionally good at it. They just love it and they spend all their time on it. It's just that way. You don't need to go to a four university to learn how to program. And there needs to be trade schools that teach. I know there are here and some of them have shady reputations, but there needs to be a trade school to teach bright students uh, who are disadvantaged, who can't afford a university, how to program. And they'll go get a great job or they'll go work at a game studio. A lot of people I work with at dev studios did not have a college degree. Right, they just love it. Yeah. They just love it. They just love it so much. They want to do it all the time. So that's, you know, if you could instill that passion in a two-year program at a trade school for low-dollar uh, I think we could probably meet our demand here. Now, certain disciplines, you can't really do it in two years, like maybe electrical engineering, that's a four-year degree or plus five-year. It's hard. It's a very long learning process. 
mechanical engineering, same thing, civil, uh, maybe architecture is a little bit different. I'm not slamming school of architecture, but it's just, it's just a different thing. And, and I don't know why we don't have a trade school. If we have such demand, we have to bring people in from all over the world to work here. Why can't we have a, a program here where we teach people how to do the, those trades? It's a trade. Uh, right. Frankly, it is. And, and, and uh, in, in two years, and they go out and get a job and fill a position that's open somewhere. So that's my take on it. John. Yeah, and I, I had, um, I mean, Germany does a good job of that with um, manufacturing uh, apprenticeships, and they, they have some of the best in the world in, in the car manufacturing industry, I've heard. Um, so, you know, that that's a place where it seems to have worked in, in, a, in, in a slightly um, parallel industry. But um, Jack McCauley, thanks so much for your time today. Um, really enjoyed that look back uh, at things in the past and where things might be going in the future and hope you can come out to Dubai next time we have a massive technology conference. I, I will have my passport in order this time. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I appreciate it. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alboaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Alboaba Business, syndication distribution on Alboaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Alboaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.